It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This week on The Takeout, Natasha Cloud, an outspoken gun safety advocate and starting point guard for the WNBA's Washington Mystics. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the rapist part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where we are each and every week two things and two things principally. What are those two things? Well, relentlessly curious and, second, steadfastly non-ideological. We don't play ideological favorites here at The Takeout. We talk to all ranges of voices, and we go to all different parts of the city, and I can't tell you how excited I am to be in a very special part of Washington, D.C., Anacostia. We don't get a chance to bring the show here that often because... Our guests maybe aren't there, or I don't have enough time, my work schedule, but it all worked this week. And I want to thank our guest this week because she is part of the reason, the, uh, if you will, um, geographic tug that pulled us across the Anacostia River into Anacostia. We're at Busboys and Poets, a chain here in Washington. We've been at one before, first time here. We're delighted to be here. Natasha Cloud is our guest this week. Now, who is Natasha Cloud? You may not know that name unless you're a big fan of the WNBA. She's a starting guard for the Washington Mystics. Just made the playoffs. We're playing for the championship. We'll get to that in a second. And we asked Natasha to join us for lunch here at Bus Boys and Poets because she has, I think it's fair to say, and I'll let her speak for herself, found her voice around an issue that is central to this community, not just within Washington, D.C., but Anacostia. And I'll let her describe what that issue is and her finding the voice. So, Natasha, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What's the issue, and how did you find your voice around it? Gun violence. Uh, I've been here with the Mystics for five years. I've been blessed to be in the same organization. Um, and, you know, D.C. became a second home to me. I'm from Philadelphia, two hours down 95, so uh, fairly close. But D.C. has really became my home over these last five years and so um, for me this community is important and when we moved into southeast washington dc for our new arena the uh, mystics now play in this part of the city we now play in congress heights yep um at the entertainment and sports arena which is amazing uh gives us a really real home court advantage for us to play in um but when we moved into southeast dc I wanted to take it upon myself as well as the team did too to be a part of the community and help the community grow. Um, and, you know, we have an adoptive school in Henley Elementary School, Monumental as a whole. Our organization adopted Henley Elementary. 
Um, and I went for a book reading to a kindergarten class. Uh, and the librarian at the time, who I just saw in Whole Foods the other day, which was really nice too, uh, begged and pleaded with me. Um, you know, they weren't getting the attention that they needed. There had been three bullets that had penetrated the school during that month. Three. Uh, three. Not just one, but three. And two in the last week. Uh, so for me, that immediately hit me in my chest because I never heard about it. You know, I'm not typically one that sits down and watches the news at nighttime. Um, I kind of just... You're not alone in that regard, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I try, I'm trying to get better at it, so I'm like more aware, but... Um, for me, it's just word of mouth and being in the community and sure. hearing the things. So, um, you know, she begged and pleaded with me, and I knew there was something that I needed to do when I'm hearing three- and five-year-old children talk about gun violence like it's an everyday thing for them, um, and it shouldn't be the case. And therefore, after that encounter, you decided to do something. Tell my audience a little bit about what you decided to do. Uh, so I've been blessed uh, with this beautiful career um, and blessed to be here in D.C. with the mystics who allow us to use our voice and our platform. Um, so I use my God-given platform to bring a media blackout. Um, so a media blackout uh, surrounded by sports is when after the game we don't discuss anything but the issue at hand. Um, so after, I'm not sure who we played that day, but after the game, um, no one spoke. I made one um, you know, I addressed the media by myself and talked about gun violence in D.C. and specifically what had help, happened at Henley Elementary School. Um, so it's huge. It's, it's something that's small, but it's something that sheds light um, on the issue at hand. And I want to play for our audience. Uh, this is number two, Katiana. This is Natasha Cloud, otherwise, sometimes also known as Tasha. I might use them interchangeably. <laughs> she give me permission to do that. But Natasha Cloud, post-game comments, June 14th, 2019, here in Washington. We would be doing a disservice if we didn't bring light to the terrible things that are going on in this community. So there will be no statements made about the game. Again, it's just a game. But we're talking about people's lives within this community. So we want to be part of the solution. Um, we are in 100% support. Um, and again, we just want to make this community better. A reaction from your teammates and the organization itself? Uh my teammates were great. Um, as I said, when we moved in this community, we wanted to be a part of a solution for a community that desperately de needed help and attention. Um, so it was great from them. Uh, the only concern for all of us was we don't want this just to be a one-time thing. We want to be able to, when we go overseas in the off-season for six months, what are we going to do then? You know, So uh, laying glass, grassroots here uh, is what we're trying to figure out of what we can do when we're not only in season but one we're off season too and the organization did not have any problem with you taking the stand at all at all monumental has been huge for me and you know not and monumental is our our whole organization our okay. un umbrella organization over us the caps the wizards uh the valor the go-go um, Monumental is our organization. So uh, they've been huge in not only educating me, uh, leading me to the right people, uh, kind of creating paths for me. And just like your show, they set me up on your show to, again, shed light on an issue at hand. And you started this process uh, on Instagram. Yes. And I want to play, for, that's number one, Katiana. This is how this all this ball got rolling, if you will. When you're talking about changing a culture, when you're talking about ending a cycle, when you're talking about empowering our youth and giving them opportunities, it starts with their education. And our kids can't even feel safe to go to school right now. What are we doing? 
We got to do better for our youth. We got to do better for our community. The fact that three bullets have gone through, the fact that one bullet has gone through that school's window, but three in the month of June and nothing is being done. I'm calling everyone's asses out. In a way, I heard a kind of suppressed rage in that Instagram post that was not, you were a little bit calmer, if allow me to say so, uh, in the post-game comments, but on that Instagram post, you seemed fired up. Yeah, uh, the Instagram post I did immediately after I left the school, um, after the librarian had told me, after the kids, after talking to the children. And when you're talking about changing a culture, especially in a predominantly black community, when you're talking about giving our kids opportunities and allowing them to see themselves in a different light and not having to go down one path and only that path, um, you know, there needs to be more that is done. You know, I think sometimes uh, our communities get forgot about, even with us moving into Southeast D. Okay, we don't want to be part of gentrification. How can we be a part of a solution? How can we bring jobs into the area? How can we make our community better? Um, so you just heard my upsetness um, because it does hit home for me. Like I said, I love this community. I love D.C. I love this team, um, and it's become a second home for me. But another thing is I need our kids to be safe to go to school. Do you feel as an athlete, now that you've been in the league five years, you feel your career maybe is solidified, that it's now the time, or did you always feel there was a time for athletes to step into this role of activist and athlete? I always felt um, there's a time. Like I said, we've been given a God-given platform that you know most people don't have, so we're able to speak for you know a majority that can be voiceless at times or not have a voice. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that we would be doing a disservice to if we didn't use our platform and we didn't speak up on major issues. And I know people like to say athletes need to stick to, you know, just playing their sport or whatever they want to say, but um, it's much bigger. Uh, you know, I think the state in which our, you know, entire country is right now is kind of in a downfall. So, you know, being able to step up and use our platforms and use our voices on issues that we feel strongly about is is so important. That's your voice of Natasha Cloud. We're going to continue our conversation. We're going to tell you a little bit more about Anacostia itself, its history, its attachment to Washington, D.C. It's a complicated story. There are lots of dimensions to it. We'll talk to that. And athletes, activism, politics, sports, the whole thing. We're at Busboys and Poets in beautiful Anacostia. I'm Major Garrett. Back for segment two in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to Busboys and Poets. What is that? Well, it's a restaurant, it's a bookstore, it's a coffee house, it's got a phenomenal vibe. Several of them in the Washington, D.C. area. First time we've been here in Anacostia. This opened up just in March. It was kind of a landmark event for this neighborhood, so we're very happy to be here. Natasha Cloud is our special guest. Artene has approached. She's going to take our order. Hello, Hello Artene. It's great to see you. Uh, could I have, uh, when I saw the pimento cheese, that just reminded me of something my mother used to make for me all the time. So there's a bacon and pimento cheese burger. Uh, I'll have that, please, uh, with the french fries. Yes. Thank you. That's a proper sound effect, yes. A medium. medium? Yes, please. Natasha, she's getting ready for the playoffs. I don't think she's probably going to be given team authorization for the bacon <laughs> pimento cheese burger. I'll do all right for myself, but I'm going to take the Caesar salad. Stay light. Caesar salad. Yes, there we go. Please. Stay in light. Thank you. Anything else to drink, Natasha? No, just okay. water. Today, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
So I want to tell you a little bit about Anacostia. So if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, I've lived here since 1990, uh, you will be told, well, that's a dangerous place. Don't go there. It's uh, got a lot of crime. And by statistics, it has a higher proportion of crime than other parts of the city. It also has an economic development issue, long running. But you would think if you just came to Washington, D.C., that's always been the case, and it's always been one thing. No. Like much of the mid-Atlantic region, it was first, of course, settled by Native Americans, then replaced by white Europeans. And this particular part of the District of Columbia, Anacostia, until the late 1950s and early 1960s, was entirely populated by white people. And it had a covenant in the late 19th century that prevented any real estate being leased or sold to people of African descent, Natasha, and Irish descent. Both were prohibited in Anacostia. Both are in me. <laughs> and, and when a big freeway was built, a bridge, 295, it basically cut the community in half. Not uncommon in the 50s and 60s. There was suburban flight, and then this became a predominantly African-American neighborhood in the District of Columbia. Now, if Mayor Muriel Bowser were here, she would say, look, crime in the district is down, and that's true. Homicides are a bit up. But I will tell you, Natasha, when I moved here in 1990, the year before I moved here, in the District of Columbia, there were more than 550 murders. There were 180 last year. The crime rate for the city writ large is has gone down. It is a safer community for everyone. But it's still a persistent problem here, and that's what got your attention. Absolutely. And what keyed up your level of activism. Absolutely. Do you think there is something that's still either unknown or ignored about this part of the District of Columbia? I still I think there's a part that's ignored, um, whether that is the community needing help, needing assistance. Um, you know, it's not getting it. That's that's not a secret. I think if you invest and put time into this community, you'll see a difference here as well. Um, so for me, it was another reason to shed light um, on the issues here at hand. Uh, again, you spoke on it. It's a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, you know, I don't only think it comes from a higher power, but I also think it comes within the community itself. Uh, the community needs to want better for itself. Um, so for me going in, it's not just, hey, we need to do this, this, and this, because I, didn't, I haven't come from this community. I come from a small suburban town outside of Philadelphia. So for me, it's more so listening to the people that grew up here, listening to people that live in this every day and understanding, okay, what can we do better? What have they tried? What hasn't worked? What can work? Where do you see us going? Um, you know, what can I do? At using my platform, what can the mystics use using our platform to help forward this? And one thing I would also mention about Anacostia, one of the things you can find here is the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site. Frederick Douglass, famous abolitionist, uh, bought a large plot of land here. Um, he was known as the Sage of Anacostia. He bought a place called Cedar Hill from the developer of what Anacostia was formerly known as, which was Uniontown in 1877. And he lived here until he died in 1895, among the most famous residents ever of this part of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, he is also somewhat well-known for writings that are thought of as pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality approach to life. Uh, do you think there is something about what Frederick Douglass did, said, and wrote in those years that is relevant to the future of Anacostia now? Absolutely, especially for the black community. Um, when you're talking about really taking ownership of your life and paving an avenue for yourself 
there's no secret in this country. Um, you know, there's things set up to keep different communities down. That's the reality that we live in. So for for us, you know, Frederick Douglass said it back then, it still holds the truth now is that, you know, you need to take ownership of your life. You need to pave your own roots forward and keep it moving. Um, you know, D.C. Is such a, has such a history behind it, and it's a beautiful city, especially southeast. There's so much creativity and historics here. Um, it's just sad that it's plagued by, you know, this violence within the community. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your personal background. I want my audience to get a chance to know you. You've mentioned a couple of times you grew up in suburban Philadelphia. I think it would be fair to say it was kind of an unusual upbringing, and you had an own racial awakening of your own. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. <laughs> Tell my audience how that, how that played out for you and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you were saying, uh, African-Americans and Irish were kept out of, <laughs> of Southeast D.C. I actually happen to be part of both. Um, but, you know, I'm of mixed race. Uh, my real dad is black. My mother is white. Um, I grew up in an all-white household. Uh, my stepdad is white, but he is not in any sense my stepdad. Technically, that's what he is, but, um, you know, he was there since the time I was in born. In every emotional sense, he's your father. Every single emotional sense. He's everything that I've ever needed, and I've never gone and looked for my real father um, because of that. Um, so I grew up in an all-white household. So I'm all your siblings were white? Yep, I'm the youngest of five. Uh, so I was extremely Were you adopted spoiled. into the family? No, I mean, we're all half-siblings, so my mother is my mother. Okay, I see, got it. Okay. Yeah, no, my mother is my mother. Um, our mom is all of our moms. Um, but, you know, it's my family. We right. don't ever call each other half-siblings or anything like right. that. Right, just it's family. Just our family. Right. Um, so, you know, for me, uh, growing up, I wasn't treated any differently, um, which is a testament to my family, uh, to never make me feel different in any sense. So, uh, you know, for a while there, as a young kid, you're so innocent, you're just thinking, hey, I just got a little nice tan going on year-round. Like, it looks great <laughs> on me. Um, and then the reality of the society we live in hits you, and it hits you hard. And, and how did and, it hit you first? Whether it's, you know, being followed around in stores, um, being treated differently than uh, my white counterparts, uh, having my mother looked at a different way because of having a mixed-race child. Um, there was a lot of things that played into it. Um, and then, again, I'm a, I like to call myself a gray area kid. Uh, you know, I was never black enough. I was never white enough. I was just kind of that gray area of being in mixed race. And I think a lot of mixed race kids will tell you that they feel the same way. No kidding. Yeah, that they don't fit in to either or. Um, and is that because the communities are resistant themselves or you just don't know which one you belong to? Uh, it can be a little bit of both. Um, you know, especially being raised in an all-white family, even when I brought up the topic here, I had a lot of people saying, well, you don't understand what it is like to live here or you know you don't understand what it's like to be treated as a black person and for me I am I identify as a black woman um, you know a black female um, I, I've gone through being pulled over and being scared because I'm pulled over because I'm driving a nice car um, but as soon as I say I'm a Washington Mystics player it's okay um, you know I've been followed around in stores knowing that I can buy a majority of everything in there but I'm still going to be followed around because of the color of my skin um, was there a time when you, you made, a, made a reference to the innocence of your childhood? Was there a time when you were in that phase that, and I'm just grappling for the proper phrase, this may be ham-handed, that you felt white or, or, not, or not conscious of racial or, or ethnic differences yeah, in I th your family? I, kids aren't 
aren't born into knowing how society is and knowing that there is a difference in, in how we legitimize uh, races. Kids are innocent. Um, they're taught to hate. They're taught to feel that they're different or entitled or not good enough. Um, so for me, it was just the innocence kind of ignorance of just being young and, you know, just being that innocent kid. And do you miss that innocence? Uh, no, because I feel like if I was innocent, then I would be ignorant. Um, I would be ignorant to what's going on within our country. Uh, I'd be ignorant to how people portray me, how people perceive me. Um, so I, I'm glad that I'm so-and-so woke uh, now. That's the voice of Natasha Cloud, our very special guest. We're at Busboys and Poets in Anacostia. Back for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation with Natasha Cloud starting... Point guard or guard? Point guard, point guard yes. Point guard. <laughs> uh, leading in assists, right? Uh, yes, sir. Within the league, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been a great season. It's going really well. Yeah, no, we're uh, in first place right now. We just clinched uh, our spot in playoffs. Uh, it's the earliest that our franchise has ever clinched the playoff spot. Um, you know, we have played, I think, 13 or 14 of our 17 away games, and we have the best away record in the league, which is huge. Um, and again, we have a beautiful new arena to play in and have a home court advantage. You mentioned it. I wasn't going to go there yet, but since you're there, I want to transition straight to it. You talked about away games. Mm-hmm. I want to have a conversation with you. Uh, it's not the biggest, most galactic problem in the world, but it is a difference between the way NBA players travel and the way WNBA players travel. Give my eye a sense of what that's like and the differences therein. Uh, NBA players uh, get to charter. That everywhere, Jet's uh, waiting for him. Jet is waiting for him. They look. They take Big really nice seats. pictures going on. They Big really comfy seats. Comfy seats. Lots of leg beds, room. Uh, everything. Uh, and unfortunately, the WNBA, we still fly commercial. Um, it's extremely hard when we're delayed for hours. Uh, it's extremely hard when you're talking about recovery of our bodies and being cramped Muscle in recovery seats. and thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cramped in seats, you're asking 6'6", Elena Deladon to sit in a regular seat. and Middle and, seat. Yeah, in a middle seat. Coach. And, um, you know, it, it's tough. It's tough, especially when you're playing a game, you're trying to get a red eye back into the next town to play another game. It, it's extremely tough on our bodies. It feels like a minor league situation when this is a professional league, subsidized by the NBA, and the differences, uh, I guess, uh, make you grind your teeth a bit. Absolutely. Um, you and know, actually, if I, rem- if I from my research, if I remember correctly, you traveled better in college. Absolutely. Uh, college is charter. <laughs> college is charter. <laughs> BCS schools, even a small mid-major in St. Joe's, in which I went to charters. Um, so... Uh, you know, hopefully our league progresses sometime soon, but that isn't the main issue when no, talking about not. our CBA being fixed. Um, you know, I'd rather have agreement. more money right. than to, to charter. Right. Um, I'd rather have be able to be financially stable here and not have to go play six months overseas in the off season. When did you start playing basketball, and uh, how much of that was part of your high school and college life? Um, I probably I started a lot later than most kids. I probably started at eleven or twelve years old. Um, I played every sport in the book. Uh, I was one of those hyper kids that my parents were like, we need to get her in sports so she'll be tired by the time she gets right. home. Uh, so I played every sport that you could possibly Because if she's not in sports, she'll be running around the house. Yeah, and just being crazy and annoying my parents, basically. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I got into it late. Um, you know, I was still playing a bunch of sports going into high school, and then when I hit high school, understanding that basketball was going to be my path and my gateway into different things. Um, so primarily focused on basketball. Uh, from there, going into college, I actually attended the University of Maryland my freshman year in 2010, uh, and then transferring home, back home to St. Joe's in Philadelphia for family purposes, uh, and finished out my career there. Uh, when you're talking about how much time does basketball take, it takes your entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've missed so many things, whether it's family dinners, family vacations, uh, holidays. Uh, watching my nieces and nephews grow up, your relationships suffer. Um, it's really tough, but the sacrifices are worth it when you talk about, you know, your end goal and, you know, my dreams of making it here to the WNBA, all those sacrifices were worth it. So I want to bring it back to the conversation where we started from, this issue of gun violence and activism and athletics. Um, I want to give you a chance to respond to something that was said by a member of the Ward 8 City Council. His name is Trayon White. Uh, Once you started or suggested the idea of a media blackout, uh, and he told the Washington City paper, um, I don't see the people who just tweet when I do all of my activism, and I've been doing this for 17 years. I'm paraphrasing him now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a big violence strategy meeting last week. This is relatively recently. And I didn't see the people who just tweet. Years from now, when they're on to the next hot topic in their lives, Trayon White, this is him speaking for himself, Mm -hmm. will still be here, committed and serving. Don't tweet, join us. Mm -hmm. What did you hear in that statement from him? And have you had a chance to have a dialogue since? Uh, No, I haven't had the pleasure of having a dialogue. So for me, in... When I, re, when I posted my Instagram story in June um, after I visited Henley Elementary School, I asked for a meeting with both Trayon and Mayor Bowser. I wanted to be a part of a solution. The Mystics wanted to be part of a solution. Um, haven't had that, and it's okay because I can use different avenues. I have different resources to go through um, and which Monumental helps me figure out. Um, so, you know, when, when Trayon tweeted that, uh, I think it was a day full of anger and impulsation, uh, whether it was me leaving Henley Elementary and going on my rant on Instagram or him tweeting. Um, my thing is, is I'm here. So utilize us, you know, utilize not only myself, but the mystics and monumental. Why wouldn't you want to use a huge resource to help this community, a resource that's within this community as well? And the reason I bring that up is it may sound to many of my audience, our audiences all over the country, all over the world, mm-hmm. very deeply local. Like, Major, that sounds such like so granular. You're getting right down the middle. Yes, but it's part of a larger spectrum that I want to talk to you about, which is even within this community, I heard in that comment from Trayon White, look, I'm here, you're not, you're an athlete, or you're just on social media, you're Mm -hmm. just tweeting to sort of vent, and there's a separation even there in this community. Absolutely. And that's part of this larger dialogue about athletes, activism, and the times we're living in. It it creates, like you said, a little bit of anger, a little bit of pushback. Absolutely. Even when people are on the same side of the issue. And for me as well, um, I'm a very blunt person. I don't like to dance around things. I like to get straight to the point and the issue at hand. Um, So I might have come off a little harsh. Um, I wasn't saying that Trayon hasn't done anything for this community. Everyone knows that he's within this community. He grew up in it. He's lost family members to it. So I'm not taking anything away from what he has done or or will do. Um, But my thing is, 
with three bullets penetrating one single elementary school within weeks of each other, and nothing is being done. No police extra presence is being done. Um, they're not being heard. Uh, not only the librarian, but also other teachers and faculty. Archana has arrived with the lunch. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank you very much. Um, you know, we need to take this seriously, and we're willing to help. As an athlete, I do have a platform that Treyon might, might not necessarily have, so let me help. And is it your belief, just as a baseline, and you mentioned your penchant for bluntness a moment ago, so I'm going to give you an opportunity. If three bullets had uh, penetrated uh, an elementary school in northwest Washington, D.C., or northeast Washington, D.C., do you think the reaction collectively would be different? Absolutely. And what would it be? It would be immediate action. Immediately. Yeah, this is a crisis. Yeah, this is what a are we crisis do? that needs to be figured out. We'll put huh. more police presence. We'll do whatever we need to do because it is southeast D.C., and it's a predominantly lower economic and black community. It gets ignored. And that's part of this whole conversation. So before we go to break, I'm going to play this soundbite, which I know you know uh, very well. Uh, I'm sure you don't like it, but it's the President of the United States at a rally in Huntsville, Alabama, September 22nd, 2017. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired. Fired! What do you think of that? I don't know who that stranger is in the most powerful house in the land, um, but that's not my president. Um, he stands for nothing that this country is supposed to stand for. Uh, when you're talking about the NFL and its respected military and the kneeling and the protests that he tried to minimize and distract away with all his with all his antics, um, you know, he ignored the issue at hand. He ignored why they were doing it. And why they were doing it was because in this country we have a, a, a problem with police brutality, and especially within minority communities, and that's why the kneeling happened. Not protesting our military, because we, every athlete will tell you we respect what they do. And if they didn't do what they do overseas, we wouldn't be able to do what we do here. I always like to say my grandfather and my dad were, were both in the military, and I would like to say that people sacrificed their lives overseas in order to protect us our military branches they they risked their lives for us to have all the same freedoms here in this country and we're not all receiving those same freedoms so basically they're over there risking their lives for for what for Something one race it still feels for one race here. yeah absolutely that's your voice of natasha cloud back for segment four here at bus boys and poets and anacostia in just one moment CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Busboys and Poets in Anacostia. So glad to be here and so glad to be joined with this fascinating conversation with Natasha Clout, starting point guard for the Washington Mystics, WNBA, and an athlete activist, fair to say. We were having that conversation about President Trump calling out and politicizing the kneeling, but and I've had... Uh, Demora Smith on my program, uh, head of the National Football League Players Association, and Eric Winston, who is the player representative, president of that. And we had a long conversation about this, and both of them had to admit grudgingly that in the end, the president and his rhetoric led to changes, and the NFL, from their perspective and from the players' perspective, mostly stopped that particular form of protest, kneeling. 
Do you agree with that as an objective fact that that's essentially what's happened? Does it need to go in a different direction? And does that, from your perspective as an athlete who was also has a voice as an activist, tell you something about what is or isn't doable or achievable? Yeah, uh, I agree that for the most part the kneeling has ended within the NFL. Um, and that's a direct correlation of players being scared that they'll be fired. Um, I think That their you, livelihood will be jeopardized if they take this political stand. Absolutely. This is their careers. This is what they've worked for their entire lives. This is how they provide for their families. Um, and when you're talking about uh, being stable uh, for their families and for their life, you know, it, is that risk worth it? Um, so for me, it's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, I also agree with, okay, we're kneeling and we're bringing light to it. But what are we doing next? What are we doing to What's create What's the next change? phase? Yeah, what is the next phase? We can't just continue to kneel or, you know, continue to... Have a blackout with the, with the media. Yeah, we need steps moving forward. We need... We Have need you thought about that progress. here in D.C. in, in Anacostia with what you're going to do and what you hope to... Which, what, is your next, what is your next step? Absolutely. Um, utilizing Monumental, again, has been, it has been great for me in, in using their resources to point me in the right direction. Uh, I just actually teamed up with Every Town, uh, which is a nonprofit organization, one of the leaders in Every Town Against Gun Violence. Yes, yes. yes. Um, it, they're one of the best uh, nonprofit organizations when talking about gun laws. Um, and what I love most about them is, you know, they're they're not about taking guns away. They're about sensible laws surrounding our guns. Um, and I think that's what we're lacking as a country right now. Ma- making them safer in either their sale or use. Both. Okay. Um, the, the, I'm actually wearing my mom's Demand Action shirt right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the bills, they're a part of every town. And one of the bills that they're trying to pass right now is a background check. Um, it's, it's gone passed along, but uh, it hasn't been taken in the Senate yet, which is an issue. Uh, you know, And what, it's unclear where the president is on that. Two weeks ago, he sounded like he was for it. Now he sounds like he's against it again. Uh, a pattern we've seen before. When, absolutely. When the NRA is one of your main contributors to your campaign, you're, you're going to have... Uh, one foot in, one foot out to trying to, to kind of try to uh, be on both sides of the, of the law. I want to ask you, as you have learned more and been in contact with these organizations and from your perspective as an athlete and an activist, quite clearly the country is gripped with a sense of anxiety and trauma about mass shootings. Absolutely. Justifiably. I wonder if you think there is something, though, that is placing a lot of emphasis on that when this grinding reality of gun violence in places like Anacostia, Chicago, other urban areas is not treated with near the same either level of curiosity or alarm. Uh, Yeah, it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, we see a mass amount of deaths as, you know, a bigger problem than, you know, a nine-year-old boy being shot here in the streets of Southeast D.C., um, for me, they both have the same importance um, and the same problem of, of gun violence and not having sensible laws surrounding our guns. Um, it's going to be, it's never going to change overnight, um, but there needs to be things implemented to help change uh, our community and our country. Uh, when you're talking about mass shootings, what do our mass shooters look like? They're all white males. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk about terrorism before we talk about the mass shootings and the issues be t- behind these white males going in and shooting up different places. It was very 
quick to see on that, on social media after the El Paso shooting. I mean, literally hour within minutes of the gunman being arrested, mm-hmm. I saw on social media, wait, this person was arrested without incident? Mm-hmm. He just shot 20. We didn't even know the number of dead at the time. But we, the, the, uh, the projected number was 20 at that time. I saw uh, so many Twitter posts. Wait a minute. 20 people were shot. He was arrested without incident. Mm-hmm. An African-American in this country cannot shoot anyone and either be brutalized or run the risk of being shot. I mean, how did you how do you factor that in your own mind as you think about this issue and these underlying questions? Well, it, for, for me, that's just the ignorance of our society is that we can allow that to happen. The, the fact that a black man can't sell CDs outside a store without being shot or being killed is an issue, but yet a, a white male can go shoot 20 people and be totally fine. He's in handcuffs, he looks good, he looks healthy, he's fed, he, he gets to go home to his family. Well, no, no, he didn't get to go well, home to his family. Well, he didn't get to go home to his family, but in, in the reality, his family still gets to see him. A black, a black male does not get that same respect. And you're thinking, I would imagine, of at least of Eric Garner and others. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we can go on for days about the list at this point. And it's not as if this show or anyone in this conversation is advocating that the police should have shot the El Paso shooter if he put his guns down and put his hands up. He should be taken into custody. That's what's supposed to happen so he can be tried and society can have its process. Absolutely. Your point of view, I'm gathering, and again, your words I want you to use, not mine. You just want that applied equally. Equally to all races, not just not just one race. Um, you know, again, I think I have to pay respects to our police departments. They do a phenomenal job. They lay their lives on the line for us every day. They protect this community. But at the same time, too, in a predominantly black community, there is a there is a fear. There is a fear, and it goes both ways. The police fear of black community, black communities fear police. There's no trust. There there is a separation. Um, and that needs to be fixed. When you were uh, growing up, I want to ask you in the minute we have to go, um, did you ever have the talk? Or was the talk ever given to you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I can remember it. I was probably, I think I was 16. I just got my license, um, and my mom had to sit me down and have the talk. Uh, you know, be Which careful. Goes something be, like? Be careful, um, especially in different communities that you're in. Uh, you know, don't necessarily be driving late night in these neighborhoods because they're predominantly white and you will get pulled over. Um, you know, I need you to be safe out there. Obviously, there is a difference in how you will be treated as I will be treated. Um, and, and that reality hits so hard. That reality hits harder when knowing I'm going to bring a black child into this world. That's the voice of Natasha Cloud. It's been a fabulous conversation. I really appreciate you taking time to come here and bringing us here to Anacostia, Busboy and Poets. I've got this very large pimento cheese and bacon burger, which I was too cautious to try to eat (laughs) on camera, and I think that was the right call. I would have been impressed if you could have handled that on camera. Natasha, it's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Stay stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake, especially I'll come up on Tuesday. And obviously continuously here on CBSN. Natasha, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. 
And for more, visit takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. Get in my belly! If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.